We're going to go ahead and get started here in our Bible class, Forgive, going through Tim Keller's book called Forgive. Uh, I would recommend this book. It is not that long. It's not that big. Hopefully you've benefited from being in this class and um, maybe think about picking this up, reading through it with a friend and thinking about these things a little bit more together. We've been starting each class by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. Um, This time I put a different translation on there because even though I like the CSB's line asking God to forgive us our debts just as we forgive our debtors, I think that the NLT puts it a little bit more starkly when we pray, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. I think it makes it a little bit more clear what we're doing, what we're asking from God, and then what we have to grant to other people. Um, It's not just a slight that we have against God, but we've actually sinned against him. And sometimes people sin against us, and we don't want to minimize things. We want to speak truly about them. So if you don't have the New Living Translation edition of the Lord's Prayer memorized, you might want to follow along on the sheet, or I'll uh, zoom in here on the screen. Let's say this prayerfully together. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you pray the Lord's Prayer, basically by the time you finish, God's answered most of those prayer requests. Some of them are yet to come. The full coming of the kingdom, uh, some our struggles with temptation and full rescue, but God answers these prayers for us on the regular. Well, we're moving on to our lesson on, our, on uh, practicing forgiveness. This is part one of two, so next week we'll pick up on this. This lesson deals primarily with uh, our relationship with God. Next week, I think, might be the most practical lesson of all of them. So that, that would be one to perhaps go into prayerful, especially if you feel that God is wanting you to be more forgiving. Um, but in, uh, early in the class, we observed Keller's distinction between vertical forgiveness and horizontal forgiveness. Vertical forgiveness involves recognizing both our need for and reception of forgiveness from God. So that has to do with our relationship to God, while horizontal forgiveness has to do with our relationship with other people, offering forgiveness to others. The basis of that horizontal forgiveness, the forgiveness that you offer to other people, is vertical forgiveness, God's forgiveness of us. He writes, Christians believe that an experience of God's forgiveness is a uniquely powerful motivation, as well as the instructive pattern for the extension of it to others. Do you believe that? Do you think Christians have an advantage when it comes to forgiving and being forgiving people? I think we do. I think we do because we have God's forgiveness of us that we've experienced, 
that we've seen. It inspires us and it provides a model for us. Otherwise, I think the, the, there's really only a couple of reasons that you would have to forgive somebody. One would be your personality. You know, you just, you just don't want, like, conflict. One might be that you want to free yourself internally from a problem. Um, and the other one might be that you're stuck in relationships with people. So sometimes you just have to forgive because you want to be forgiven selfishly. So you give a little forgiveness to get a little forgiveness. But the Christian model of forgiveness is far more grace-filled than that, as we've seen throughout. But let's think about our need for God's forgiveness and what it means for us to receive that forgiveness. Christians affirm that every single person is in need of God's forgiveness. Apart from forgiveness and reconciliation, we all remain alienated from God and we're endangered by God's wrath. This is Romans 1 through 3 that we've been studying. That need for forgiveness is occasioned by human complicity in sin. It's our rebellion against God and ultimately, it's our sin that is the source of our guilt. Do you ever feel guilty? That's what we're talking about here. Why do we feel guilty? Sin. Most of the time. We're going to have to distinguish between true guilt and false guilt later on. But we're guilty before God. And we need that to be taken care of. And that only happens through God taking the initiative to reconcile with us and offer us his forgiveness. Now, I do want to say, before we talk about guilt and shame, there's a book called Biblical Critical Theory by this guy, Christopher Watkin, and he makes a really insightful comment about guilt. He says, God gives Adam and Eve the feeling of shame at their sin in the same way that he gives us the feeling of pain when we injure ourselves to help us to understand what is harmful. A lot of us just want to get rid of any sense of guilt or shame right away. We just don't want to think about it anymore. Kind of like we want to get rid of pain right away. But sometimes you shouldn't take pain medication to get rid of the pain because you need your body to do what it's supposed to do. Uh, ben and I were talking the other day. This is kind of gross. But sometimes if there's something in your system that's got to come out, you should just let it come out. Don't take medication to keep it in. Your body knows what's it, what it's doing because that pain is a gift. The reaction is a gift. Guilt and shame is a gift from God to let us know what's harmful for us and when we've done something wrong. But let's work to understand guilt and shame a little bit more. Uh, one other quick aside. There's a lot of debate about how you should use the terms guilt and shame. Do they mean the same thing? Are they separate? A lot of people will say guilt is an objective reality that's connected to your wrongdoing. So either in the court of public opinion or God, you're guilty for violating a certain norm. Shame, people would say, is the feeling of guilt or a feeling of embarrassment or lack of whatever in front of other people, whether you should or not. Um, I, that needs a lot of nuance. Keller uses the terms interchangeably. I think on the street level, almost everyone else does too, so I'm going to here. But if this is something you really care about, distinguishing between guilt and shame, you're right. There, there probably is some distinction there. But let's work to understand guilt and shame. 
In his article, The Strange Persistence of Guilt, Wilfred McClay considers the continued presence of guilt in human society, even after a mass rejection of notions like sin and accountability to God. And guys like Nietzsche, Nietzsche maybe is how you say that, um, Freud, Karl Marx, all of these guys basically said, look, the only reason people feel guilt is because there's this social construct of God and Society is making people feel like they disobeyed God, and that's why they're feeling guilty. So if we can get rid of the idea of God, guilt will go away. And people had different motivations for getting rid of the idea of God. Some people just because they were anti-God. Some people because, like Karl Marx, I think, because he saw that Christian institutions and Christian nation states had utilized the church in categories of guilt and forgiveness to control people. So he saw this talk of guilt and forgiveness as a way of just exercising power. Whatever the case is, these various thinkers for different reasons were saying, if we can get rid of the idea of God and of an objective morality, then guilt will go away. There will be no reason for guilt and shame. But the problem is that guilt and shame persist even in the most non-Christian of societies. So I think what that indicates for us and what Keller is getting at here is that there's something inherent in the reality of the universe, in who we are, in the way that things are, where guilt persists, and that's an indication that we have a problem with God. So we can write God out of our imaginations, but that doesn't get rid of God. We can say God is dead, but he's very much alive, and guilt is going to persist. Now, in our society especially, we use different terminology to describe what's historically been called guilt or shame. We'll use terms, Keller says, that map directly onto what has traditionally been called guilt and shame, like low self-esteem, feelings of inadequacy, poor body image, self-loathing, and self-harm. So we might not use the term guilt or shame, but they're there. And I think most people still, at the end of the day, would say they feel guilt and shame. Um, so what does modern society do about this? Well, we try to, in McClay's words, um, discharge our guilt without admitting we're sinners. We try to find ways to remove the guilt and the shame without ever engaging in confession of sin and repentance, identifying as sinners. Um, McClay refers to our contemporary period where people do this through distraction, through self-improvement, through therapy, through so many other things as a new moral economy where the new solution to the problem of guilt apart from God and confession comes through blame shifting and an inverse honor and shame culture and other means. Um, and our attempt to discharge guilt isn't really hypocrisy. It's not us trying to say that we're not guilty. It's just a story of modern people working out their self-salvation in fear and trembling. It's just a different way to try to find salvation. In a secular age, people distance themselves from God, but they cannot seem to disassociate with their guilt. They can't find forgiveness for it. And you better believe that that has an impact on the way they relate to other people's guilt and offenses against them. If you can't find abiding forgiveness, you aren't in a position where you can offer it to somebody else. All right, so guilt unlocated on 
placated. The removal of God in the indictment of sin has not done away with guilt. It's just made people more anxious, wondering why they experience guilt and shame, and leaving them with no recourse to deal with it. Um, this situation is depicted in a really troubling story by Franz Kafka called The Trial. Um, has anybody read The Trial? If you want to be depressed, basically, you could read this. Um, if you want to get a lot of millennials angry at you, say that this is a good story because they don't understand it. In this story, Joseph K. is arrested. This, like, 13-year-old kid is arrested without any explanation. And he's given multiple hearings, multiple trials, but he never learns what he's accused of. And at first, as he's sitting, you know, in prison and on trial, he thinks it's all a mistake and he can just clear it up if he knows what he's being charged with. If he knows what he's supposedly guilty of, he can clear his name. But he never hears charges, and as time goes on, he begins to look at his life, and he realizes that there were bad things that he did that just might be the reason for all of this. Um, if you want a list of great dystopian short stories that basically communicate this, where people are in trouble and they don't know why, but upon reflection, they are plagued with guilt, and in a lot of these short stories, all the way to suicide, that authors philosophers are saying, they're trying to communicate this. We have guilt and we don't know why and we don't know what to do with it. And that's a problem. Um, it's like the proverb, the wicked flee when no one pursues. Because we're wicked. And we, and we know it. Even when no one's coming, we know, if we're honest with ourselves, that we need forgiveness. Um, at the end of the story, Joseph K. is put to death. And neither Joseph nor the reader ever founds out if he was justly arrested, if he actually deserved the death penalty. That's why millennials hate this story, you know. Uh, that's, but it forces us to reckon with the divine just God and the reality of a death penalty that we read about in the Bible, and it makes us uncomfortable. It really does, especially when we start thinking about the people who maybe don't know everything that we know about the Bible. I think those are things that should trouble us, but ultimately it should point out the reality and the inescapability of guilt and shame apart from God. Uh, Joseph K. experiences in his captivity an escalated sense of anxiety and shame whose center could not be located and therefore could not be placated. Um, that's John Updike's explanation of this story. Keller goes on to summarize our modern guilt problem apart from God. Modern culture has done everything to say, we don't believe in God, we don't believe in heaven, we don't believe in hell, we don't believe in moral categories. There are no moral absolutes. Kafka, in this story, says it hasn't helped. If anything, it has made it worse because now our guilt can't be eradicated. We can say, I don't believe in sin and I don't believe in guilt, and yet there's a voice in us that calls us cowards, calls us fools, makes us ashamed, makes us say we're not living up. There's something going on. What is it? And Keller suggests, I think rightly, that secular culture has no definitive answer. Now, I'd, I'd suggest that the more you get to know your neighbors and other random people, the more you'll realize that they are carrying around burdens of guilt and shame, and they don't know why, and they don't know what to do with it. 
And I think um, this is a little bit of a side note. I, I, when I was growing up, I was told you really have to work hard to convince people of their sins. You have to like point your finger at them and kind of yell at them, you're a sinner. I, I don't think that approach works. I think that turns people off because it shows you don't really care about them. You just care about showing them they're a sinner. I think if you actually come to care about people, you can help them connect the dots between their guilt and their shame and their lack of answers for it and then give them an answer. That takes time and deep relationships, but I think that's the kind of evangelism, the gospel sharing that we should be doing. Sometimes you do need to tell people, hey, you are sinning. This is evil. This is bad. Most of the people we know, I think, know that already. They just don't have the theological grammar for it or the solution, and we can give it to them. Keller says we need to look to the Bible then to deal with guilt and shame. I think we would all agree with him. And of course, he begins at the very beginning with the narrative of nakedness and shame in the garden, where Adam and Eve hid from God and from one another because they were afraid and they were guilty. They covered up. They hid. The open relationship that they had with each other is now closed. Uh, They didn't just hide from God. They also are ashamed in front of each other, and that hadn't happened before. Keller appeals to Sartre's being and nothingness. If you want a real brain puzzler, pick that one up, and um, you can decide whether or not Keller's reading him correctly. But he, he appeals to Sartre, who argues that human condition needs a spiritual covering. We cannot bear to have people get an unfiltered, out-of-control look at who we really are. We desperately look for ways to cover up and to curate a flawless image. But, Keller writes, Instagram is not enough. I think he's putting his finger onto something. We curate the way we look on Instagram and in a room like this, you know. I looked in the mirror more than I needed to because I want to curate. I've got it all together. We all do that because we can't bear for people to see who we really are, an unfiltered look at us. Now, if you keep reading Being in Nothingness, you'll also learn that we have this odd fascination with seeing the unfilteredness of other people. So we like looking through the keyhole at them, but when we turn around and someone's looking at through the keyhole at us, it's shameful. This is why people love shows like The Kardashians or The Duggars or any reality TV show where you see the very curated, uncurated messiness, because we like to look at other people's stuff. We don't like to be seen. And if we know that there's a God who knows that guilt and shame is inescapable, I think a lot of us have lost that to our detriment, and then we're shameful and guilty about all the wrong things. We have a bunch of false guilt, and we never experience the true guilt. Um, the Martin Luther kind of uh, John Edwards and terrified before God apart from Christ. I I think that's what Keller gets at. So we try to cover up with fig leaves, just like Adam and Eve. We're just like them. Uh, The figurative fig leaves, uh, busyness, workaholism, perfectionism, ongoing entertainment and distraction, never allowing a moment of silence, identifying ourselves as victims of others in our surroundings, promoting relativism to escape our shortcomings and wrongdoings, um, 
pursuing non-committed sexual relationships to find affirmation without the restraints of obligation and accountability. Um, we hold on to our youth. We desperately pursue approval. The list goes on. And all of these are desperate efforts to deal with the sense of unacceptability, of unlovability that we all have. But the fig leaves don't work. Keller writes, imagine for a moment trying to make do with an actual garment of fig leaves for clothing. Such a garment would be always falling apart. And so it does with our figurative fig leaves. Um, have you ever just seen someone who's trying too hard? <laughs> if it falls apart when they're working their hardest and it falls apart the moment you stop tending to it. We need to identify the fig leaves that we pursue as methods of alleviating guilt apart from confession and repentance. And we must further recognize um, our, or reflect on, is what I think what I was once said, reflect on our inability, on their inability to accomplish what we set them up to do, which is to remove our guilt, because only God can remove our guilt. Um, when we become conscious of the reasons that we're desperately dressing ourselves up in them, uh, only then can we see what we need to confess. So not, not only do you need to become attuned to what you're doing in hiding your guilt and shame and the things that you're drawn to to do that, you also have to get underneath the cause of the guilt and shame. What's going on there that's causing the run to the fig leaf to begin with? Um, that's, that's a hard work that's involved, as we'll see in confession, is actually saying explicitly what's going on. And if you never become conscious of that, it's really hard to find forgiveness and alleviation of guilt for it. Um, before I move on, any comments or questions about this whole matter of the persistence of guilt and shame? All right, I think probably most of you can relate to that. I think if anyone ever said, I've never felt guilty, I just never feel guilt or shame. I, I think I'd push them to just take a week, go camping, no electronics. Sit there. Don't be afraid of the silence. And I bet by the end of the week, you'll start, you'll start to be a little more like Joseph K. than um, the numbed, distracted American that we all tend to be. Three resources, humility, joy, and love. Keller suggests that these resources allow us to recognize the source of our guilt and to refuse to settle for fig leaves. Um, calling someone to find and recognize and try to deal with their guilt and shame, apart from these resources, is pretty hopeless. So you really need these. And again, this is why when I say, when you're talking to your non-Christian friends and family and neighbors, Loading on guilt and shame doesn't help them guilt, deal with guilt and shame. You need to show them the way of humility, joy, and love. And if you think about it, um, think about verses in the Bible like the, Jesus who humbled himself for the joy that was set before him. Because of his love, he gave up himself for us all. These are the kinds of things we need to tie into and that we have as resources when we encounter guilt and shame in our lives. Um, he explores the first two resources of humility and joy by looking at the Joseph narrative when Joseph reasserts his forgiveness to his brothers. So he expresses humility by recognizing that he's not in the place of God. 
We all need to be humble and say, we aren't God. Now, that's true when we're looking at other people, but I think we also have to be humble when it comes to admitting our sin, don't we? It takes a level of humility to say, yeah, I'm a sinner. It takes a lot of humility when someone comes up to you and points out a flaw, a shortcoming, to admit it instead of justify it or excuse it. But the Christian resource of humility allows us to confess it. We're not God, so we're not perfect. We're not God, so we're not in control of all of these things. We're not God, so we can't get rid of the guilt on our own. Um, he also recognizes God's divine sovereignty in which God transforms attempts at harm and genuine acts of sin into instruments for good. So even though we ought to lament in the face of evil, the Joseph narrative proves the possibility of confident expectation and joy in God's ability to transform evil into good. And on that ground, Joseph repaid evil with good, extending forgiveness to his brothers. You can see immediately how it affects our forgiveness to other people. If God can turn the evil that they did against us into good, man, we can trust God with that and we can forgive. We, we don't have to hold on to that. We don't have to try to unravel it all. We can just forgive. Um, but then the way that Keller doesn't say this, but I wish he had, I, I think the way that this helps us with our guilt before God is that if God is the kind of God who can transform heinous evil into great good, then whatever sin we're guilty of, we can leave that with God and trust that he can transform our sin against him into good that we can't imagine or yet see. Um, some people, we'll get to this, say they just can't forgive themselves. You know, they know God has forgiven them, but they can't forgive themselves. And I think one of the issues may be that they don't trust that God is powerful enough and good enough that he can transform your sin into something good. So you don't have to keep hanging on to it. And I wish more people would take that notion into account when they deal with the so-called problem of evil. You know, if God is all powerful and all good, then how come there's evil in the world? You know, there's a guy who... Uh, no longer lives in the state, but texted me this week saying that exact thing. He's wrestling through his Christian faith, and I'm proud of him for asking these questions and not just running away from it, but, but right now he can't conceive of how God's power and goodness can go together in the presence of evil. But Joseph, the Joseph narrative shows us that however great the evil, God is going to do something that's even greater in terms of good through that. So we can let go of our guilt when we've committed that. And when someone's committed evil against us, we can let go of that too. So do you see how humility and joy, the joy of knowing God's goodness and power allows us to open hand? Tim. Mm -hmm. It was almost like he was trying to prove prove something by by turning around and, and choking the other servant and telling him to pay up. Yeah. Trying to even the scale a little bit or something. Well, yeah, and I think yeah, I think even more so it shows that he doesn't trust the king. No. If the king would, could take care of his massive debt, and he's really hurting financially for this paltry debt this other guy owes him, why can't he trust the character of the the providing king. You know, that's what we need to do in our forgiveness. Uh, Keller applies Joseph's act of forgiveness to his readers. 
Forgiveness is often or perhaps usually granted before it's felt inside. I want to emphasize that. Think about Joseph. Do you think Joseph felt super forgiving when he saw his brothers? No, it's our forgiveness of other people is often granted before it's felt inside. And that's where we're different than God. God, who is love, feels inside, I think we could say, forgiveness. We, it sometimes takes us time. When you forgive somebody, you're not saying, all my anger is gone. What you're saying when you forgive is, I'm now going to treat you the way God treated me. I remember your sins no more. Now, that doesn't mean I can't actually recall them. It means I'm not going to act on the basis of them. They're not the controlling reality in my life. What is the controlling reality? The grace of God in the way in which, out of love, he controls history. And we could add, turns evil into good. Of course, I think some might object that Joseph's exceptional circumstances were the reason he could give this exceptional display of forgiveness. Or perhaps maybe people in the olden days were saints, and people back then can forgive in that exceptional, almost irrational sort of way. But not in the modern world, not in America in 2023 when people are so mean. The problem with that reasoning, Keller responds, is that you forget that you have what Joseph did not. Joseph did not know about Jesus. If anything, our displays of forgiveness should be even more remarkable and astounding and freely given, granted before it's felt, because we've seen Jesus. Um, that, <laughs> I don't like that. I don't think a lot of us like that most of the time. How many of us love reading remarkable stories in like Fox's Book of Martyrs or Eusebius's church history where there are people who are persecuted by Christians and then they forgive those people? How many of us love reading about Jim Elliot and his wife who forgave the people who killed her husband and then went back to minister to them and they became Christians and, and friends. And we look at that and we think, oh, that's so wonderful. But when it comes to us, we think, but God doesn't want me to do anything like that. Um, you only do that in exceptional circumstances. I don't do that when fill in the blank. Um, the Christian has a third resource when it comes to acknowledging the need for it and accepting God's forgiveness. Knowledge of the love of God in the death of Jesus. But there is a great costliness to Christ's saving love I think what Keller says here sums, sums it up well. The cross, the ultimate example of God bringing good out of evil, will make you much humbler than Joseph was because you see more than Joseph just how bad we are. On the other hand, it'll make you more confident and more joyful than Joseph was. If we have access to resources for greater humility than Joseph and even greater assurance because we are in Christ, then, if anything, we have to be even better at forgiving and reconciling with those around us. I want to just read these two paragraphs by Keller because you can almost hear him saying this if you've heard him talk. Um, and, and it's a testimony of a genuine reflection and acceptance of Christ's forgiveness. When I know that I am the recipient of this kind of cost of grace, when I know that Jesus Christ went to hell's heart for me and was loving and obedient for me, there, 
that's what changes me. That's tears. That's amazement. That's exhilaration. That's galvanizing. It changes me because at the very same time, on the one hand, it humbles me out of my pride and self-centeredness, and it affirms me out of my inferiority and self-pity. It makes me hate my sins because it led to his death, but it forbids me to hate myself because he did it for me to make me free. I think some of us are good at one or the other of those. Some of us are good at hating our sins. Some of us are good at hating ourselves. Few of us are good at finding what Jesus uniquely does in allowing us to hate our sins and not hate ourselves because we can look at ourselves the way that God looks at us, loved and forgiven. We need to talk then about receiving, or any, any questions on that before we get into receiving God's forgiveness. Okay, good. Receiving God's forgiveness. The only antidote to our guilt and shame is God's forgiveness. Um, what's more, God's forgiveness is a model and inspiration for our forgiveness of others. For us to deal rightly with our own guilt, we must receive God's forgiveness. Only then can we rightly deal with the guilt of other people. Keller addresses a problem of self-forgiveness. So a lot of people these days will say, you just need to forgive yourself. And when you don't have God in your life, that's about the best that you can do. And there are certain aspects of that that are right. Um, you can look at the lists of steps here um, that include things like asking forgiveness from anyone you've wronged, all of these sorts of things. There are aspects of that are, that are true and helpful, but the Bible shows us that our self-forgiveness is not enough because ultimately it's grounded in ourselves. We're not big enough. We're not authoritative enough. We're not compassionate enough to be able to exercise self-forgiveness because even when we try, when you look at the people who have the most self-help books on their shelves and who have done the most to forgive themselves, they still feel guilt and shame. And the Bible shows us why. It's because our hearts will con continue to condemn us. And the Bible shows us why God's forgiveness is the only answer. Because if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And this is the essence of what Christianity gives us. Only God is the final judge of who we are and what we've done. If, and only if he is, then God can overrule our heart's guilt and self-condemnation. If he says we're forgiven, then we are, and we can tell our hearts to quiet themselves. The secular framework, however, has nothing to give the wounded conscience to heal it. It has nothing to say to the self who feels it is unworthy of love and forgiveness. Anyone who see, has seen the depths of their sin and what they are capable of will never be mollified by the bromide of be nice to yourself, you deserve it, because we all know deep down we don't deserve it. Um, so self-forgiveness just doesn't work. We need God's forgiveness. Now, we have to distinguish between true guilt and false guilt. Um, sometimes we don't feel guilty for the things that we ought to, and sometimes we feel guilty for things that we shouldn't feel guilty about. Um, and we, apart from the objective standard of God's word, and knowledge of God's will, there's really no way to distinguish between the two. Uh, people without any sense of objective morality have nothing to measure their guilt against. Is it legitimate guilt or is it not? Um, we, we need to make that distinction because if it's, if it's not legitimate guilt, you're confessing things you're not guilty of and you're not going to find forgiveness there because there's no forgiveness to be offered, right? It, it just does not compute is maybe the message we get back from heaven. Um, we have to distinguish between true guilt and false guilt and that's really, really hard. Um, you can only do that 
with other people helping you. Because the very nature of false guilt is that you don't know. Um, but then also the challenging thing is, in another book I, I plan to reference in the sermon this morning called On Getting Out of Bed by Alan Noble, he says the very nature of false guilt is that you don't trust other people when you're feeling it. Um, but he quotes this old cat, Richard Baxter, who says, when you are in depression like this, when you're feeling this kind of feel, guilt, don't trust yourself to yourself. Trust yourself to other people. Listen to what they have to say. Now, that the self-righteous of us who are feeling self-guilt or false guilt are in even bigger trouble because when someone tells us, no, that's false guilt, you shouldn't feel guilty for that, we immediately question whether or not they are compromised and uh, taking a soft stance on sin because they're not affirming our guilt. So then we distrust them even more. I think that's why you have to connect yourself to a community of faith and walk with people for a really, really long time. See the faithfulness in their lives so that you don't doubt that when your self-righteousness rears its head. Um, trust other people maybe to even know you and God better than you do in that moment. Ben. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, if we, if we never get beyond the surface level stuff, then we're never known, and it's, we, we can't walk forward that way. One of the things I love about being at this church, something that was really hard for me, it was even harder uh, when we first started and there were only 12 people every Sunday. Your conversation about the Vikings just got old. <laughs> Asking, how was the week? Like, you, you have to go deeper. Um, and even still, we're very resistant to that sometimes. We can avoid all of the opportunities our church has that are structured. We don't pursue organic things. We need to. That's a good word. Um, but we need to take our guilt to God. Take our guilt to God. Keller looks at Psalm 51 really quick. I, I got in a lot of trouble one year in high school. Um, I was at, This is really embarrassing to, to admit, but when I, when I was in high school, I kissed a girl, which was against our Christian school rules, and I got in a ton of trouble for this. And um, I was going to, I was class president, and they were going to take away my class presidencies, but they gave me one option for how I could stay class president and everything, which was to enter the, the Christian school preaching competition. And I was like, this is stupid, but I'll do it. And for some reason, unknown to me, but directed, I believe, by God's Spirit. I picked Psalm 51 to preach, and that was the first sermon I ever preached. I studied that for six months, and it changed my life. Um, and I preached a 12-minute sermon, which I don't know how I got so far away from that these days. But in 12 minutes, I just spoke clearly about what God taught me. So re reading through this again, you know, I, th I think I could even still, still say it. The whole premise was, because God is merciful, I can confess my sins. Point number one, because God is merciful, um, I can um, receive God's forgiveness. So confess, receive forgiveness. And then because God is merciful, I can have a new focus. So when David says, then will I tell transgressors your ways. I was preaching out of the King James. Um, those three things, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Real confession, full affirmation and acceptance of God's forgiveness, and then a new perspective, a new way of being. Um, Keller, I, uh, to truly confess, we need to avoid false forms of repentance. Here are three. Number one, blame shifting. 
if you're blame shifting, you're not fully confessing. Um, repentance begins where blame shifting ends. Counterfeit repentance number two, self-pity. Um, if we're just feeling sorry for ourselves as a victim, we're not recognizing out the role that we played. Uh, more than that, um, self-pity as sorrow over the consequences of sin is not sorrow over the sin and the offense against God. Uh, David confesses against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. And he's not saying he didn't sin against Bathsheba or Uriah, the guy he murdered or anybody else. He's just saying first, the first person I sinned against is God. And all my other sins flowed out of that. Um, Self-pity ends when you stop thinking about yourself and the consequences. In the words of Richard Sibbs, repentance is not a little bowing down of our heads, but a working of our hearts until sin is more odious unto us than the punishment. It's hard to untangle the two things, our sorrow over the consequences and our sorrow over the sin. And I think it's a little bit of a lie to say that you'll be able to fully separate those. I, I think we always experience some of both, but we need to lean into and understand the reality of our sin against God. Self-flagellation is a third counterfeit form of repentance, where, where when we do admit that we did something wrong and we exatiate it, we, we escalate how bad it was so that we don't allow anyone else to speak a word of criticism or condemnation to us. It's like... The, uh, it's like the way that Kirk Cousins responds when he messes up a play on the football field where he so beats himself up that he can't get coached right. Okay, that's my analysis from the television screen. But we all do that. When we, when we sin against someone else or against God, sometimes some of us are inclined to make such a big deal about it that now people actually feel bad for us. And they're like, oh no, you shouldn't feel bad. You didn't do anything wrong because we've made a mountain out, out of what was maybe a molehill-side sin that we should have just confessed, truly. That's, that's not it. Um, the reception of God's forgiveness is simple. Repent and ask for mercy. Yet ne- many, or perhaps most people, never experience this grace because they don't repent. True repentance begins where whitewashing and blame-shifting and self-pity and self-flagellation end. So we have to turn to God through confessing and forsaking sin to make full admission of what you've done wrong, to make a full renunciation of that sinful behavior. So not only are you honestly saying what you did wrong, but you're also committing yourself not to continue in it. And we all screw up on occasion. We all fall back into patterns of sin. But that's a little bit different than the person who says, oh yeah, that's wrong, I'll try to stop, and they don't actually try. We need to renounce our sins. We need to renounce the devil and all of his ways, as is said in all the old prayer books. Um, We need to make a full renunciation of the sinful behavior, both in our heart attitude and in practical action. Only then are we truly repenting, and only then are we positioned to receive forgiveness from God. So the one thing to receive is God's forgiveness, and that leads to rejoicing instead of despair. Um, I'll just end here by saying one of the reasons that our pastoral prayer on Sunday mornings is a prayer of confession and an affirmation of pardon is because many people are good at saying what they've done wrong, but never rejoicing and affirming that God actually forgave you. That's why people can say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. It's because they actually haven't fully received the forgiveness of God. Because once we have done that, 
once if we really believe in Jesus Christ's death for us, his reconciling power, then we look at ourselves the same way God looks at us, which is as loved and forgiven, imperfect, but being transformed into the image of Christ. So the, the foundation then of what we need is we relate to other people. The inspiration and model of our forgiveness of others is leaning into and embracing God's forgiveness of us. All right, we're at the end of our time and we're getting to the end of this class. So um, happy to keep talking if you want to follow up on anything, but thanks for your close attention.